0: Welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: Joe, I feel like it's uh, an interesting time to be a central bank.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it always is, but I think particularly interesting right now because the um the scope of new challenges, new economic conditions, new forces on sort of like how banking and money and markets work. Lots of new stuff right now, lots of uh, new territory.
0: Yeah. So not only are central banks responding to an exceptionally unusual economic crisis in the form of a global pandemic, which basically led to you know the shutdown of the entire economy last year, but they're not now all reacting sort of differently to the recovery. So, for instance, we saw the Fed coming in more hawkish than expected last week, but it's still basically on hold for the foreseeable future. You have Brazil delivering successive rate hikes to deal with inflation. Uh, China is sort of winding down some of its easy monetary policies. The ECB hasn't even started tapering or you know, even talking about tapering at this moment in time. So you have all these central banks sort of going off and doing their own thing, trying to respond to this very new environment, And in the meantime, you also have some very interesting ideas floating around on the nature of money. So sort of like the very fundamentals of being a central bank.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, I hadn't really like thought about it in in sort of those kind of crosswinds. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like uh, sort of like unprecedented. You know, I guess there is a sense in which the covid crisis hit everyone the same way at the same time, basically, like it kind of had this big shutdown effect. But the recovery is very different with different conditions. So it's like, okay, everyone turns off everything for a few months, and now we're trying to turn it back on again. And some countries have had different fiscal policies. Some countries have had different uh, trajectories of the virus itself. Some countries have like different underlying uh, economic conditions that change the nature of the recovery. So there's that. And so then you get the splintering of policy outcomes as you talk about Plus, again, you know, the uh, the rise over the last year of like different thoughts about money, particularly cryptocurrencies. We have uh, the Chinese digital currency, which is like people talked about for a long time, but is actually out. That's raising all kinds of new questions. So, yeah, just uh, numerous things all hitting at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's a lot for uh, central bankers to wrap their heads around. But uh, we are going to um, try to do exactly that today. And we have the perfect person to discuss uh, these broad themes with, you know, the outlook for central banks and also how central banks are dealing with new approaches towards money, including cryptocurrencies. We're going to be speaking with Hyun Sung Shin. He's the economic advisor and head of research at the Bank for International Settlements and also a previous All Thoughts guest. So Hyun, thank you so much for coming on.
2: It's really great to be back.
0: So I I guess just to begin with, uh, I, I sort of wanted to zero in on the central bank digital currencies idea because it does feel like over the past year, this is an idea that Is gaining a lot of momentum. We've seen a lot of banks uh, issue papers about it, including the BIS. One of the things I want to ask is Are we seeing more talk about CBDs because of the economic environment that we're in? Has the pandemic sort of accelerated interest in central bank digital currencies because we're perhaps not using as much cash and we need a whole lot more liquidity in the financial system?
2: I think it's a bit broader than that, Tracy. I think, uh, you know, there has been a broad trend um, in the thinking about uh, the monetary system at central banks. I think it's been um accelerated certainly by the pandemic and the um, uh the advent of touchless systems and so on contactless systems and so on but I think it's it's broader than that and I think it's um it's a result of the of the importance of I would say the importance of data in the digital economy um you know I think um the vast troves of data that's probably the most important feature of a digital economy, and that uh, you know poses a couple of uh, questions on the way that the monetary system works. Uh, I think one has to do with you know competition. Uh, I think here the discussion about big techs and finance uh, you know very much dovetails into this. So you know, if you have network effects, you know whereby the more users flock to a particular platform, uh, the more uh, incentive there is for others to flock to that uh, platform. Uh, you know then they t- then the data uh, has this um has this uh, property that um it actually is a very important resource and the uh, payment system itself is uh, you know can be prone to concentration for example in china the two big companies uh, have uh, have a 94% share of the uh, of the mobile uh, payment market if you then combine that with issues to do with data privacy the importance of maintaining Uh, financial inclusion uh, while guarding against the entrenchment of market power and so on. Uh, I think all these uh, considerations point to the importance of a kind of uh, a a public interest case for a well-functioning payment system. So uh, I think that's probably the best background to pose this particular question.
1: So obviously, another thing we saw was this sort of like frustration at the speed and ability of authorities to get out uh, stimulus. In the U.S., we saw a lot of issues with the unemployment insurance. There was frustration at the ability of central banks or the Fed to be able to backstop large portions of the credit market while being unable to do anything for smaller businesses or households. How much of this CBDC discussion is informed by some of these uh, disparities with the tools that we have for um, policy in a crisis? I think,
2: Joe, it's uh, probably less to do with the tools, but rather, um, I think, a realization that the current payment systems still have a way to go. You know, when we talk about programmable money, this is sometimes how it's put. You know, you have very, uh, you know, clever um, contingent contracts in the disbursements. I think, in a way, uh, you know, programmable money is a bit of an oxymoron, if you think about it, because the, the whole point of money is that it's uh, invariant, you know, its value is invariant to changes in, in circumstances. I would, I would say that these kind of uh, contingent contracts are more like vouchers. But I think it's worth actually thinking back, Joe, to the discussion uh, more broadly about financial inclusion. I think um, in many countries, I think once the political decision was made that uh, the disbursements would take place, I mean, most of it was done in a very efficient way, very expeditious way, through the conventional banking system. Uh, You know, if you have pretty much everyone connected to the banking system, everyone has an account um, and it's working efficiently and the costs are very low. You know, you don't have to send out paper checks to people. You can just, uh, you know, credit people's bank account. And I think it's important to think about the CBDC debate not as something which is fundamentally new and something which is, you know, uh, radically different from what's gone before. It's more of an evolution uh, I think it's important to bear that in mind. I think if we think about the the so-called uh, you know, retail fast payment systems around the world. So these are now pretty commonplace, uh, uh, even in developing countries. And actually, some of the best examples are in countries like India, that's really managed to build up their systems. And it's um, it's a payment system where there is a platform that's provided by the central bank or is operated by the central bank. And uh, you have a pretty open system in that uh, if you want to be a member of the system, you have to, uh, you know, abide by data ownership, data governance rules, uh, whereby, you know, you cannot simply form, um, uh, you know, data silos or walled gardens where you simply have a proprietary network. You have to be, you know, open to the other entrants into the system. But in return for that, in return for playing according to those rules, you have access to a, to an open marketplace. Uh, and the idea is that you can, you know, turn these kinds of, you know, these attributes of network effects and, uh, uh, activity begetting more data, which uh, begets even more activity and so on. That kind of thing can be turned into a virtual circle where you have uh, bigger markets, uh, cheaper services, uh, and just generally a more you know, inclusive system. So I think just to, you know, uh, cut a long story short, I think um, we probably overestimate how much there is new in this debate. I mean, there is a pretty uh, long thread that goes back to these conventional uh, payment systems.
0: So maybe now is a good time to step back and ask what exactly the ambition is of CBDCs. So what are central bank digital currencies actually trying to do or what problem are they trying to solve? And if it's about making an improvement to the payment system, then why not just let uh, private companies build payment technology on top of the existing system and the money provided by the central bank? I guess another way of saying that is, you know, what's the right division of labor between the central bank and the private sector when it comes to improving payments technology?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way of posing the question. Um, so what are CBDCs? What are central bank digital currencies? I mean, you can think of them as, um, uh, as a digital version of cash. Uh, I mean, currently, if you want to make a digital payment You make a transfer from your uh, deposit to the receiver's deposit account, possibly at at another bank or a payment service provider. The idea is that you can use a CBDC to make a payment digitally using your phone or some other device, um, just as you would uh, by handing over cash. And uh, uh, Tracy, as you put it, the the idea is not to displace uh, banks and other financial service providers, but rather... It is meant to serve as a kind of you know, base layer on top of which the, the other payment service providers can, can then uh, serve customers better. So, I, so, so the idea is that CBDCs will still um, enable central banks to have a very small footprint uh, in the financial system. I mean, cash typically is a very, very small fraction of total deposits in the economy. And the idea is that CBDCs will similarly have a small footprint. Uh, but the idea is that this um, base layer can be um, an enabling layer that uh, brings uh, you know, benefits to do with um, data, uh, data governance. That, uh, and, and we can go into the details on, 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 on how exactly they would do this. But if you can put down a layer that guards against the data silos uh, and concentration of data in the hands of a few players that leads to entrenchment and monopoly power and safeguard, you know, data privacy, then that could be a very promising base on which, you know, other private sector players can, uh, can really, uh, you know, maximize and, you know, display what they do best, which is, you know, use their creativity and ingenuity to, to serve customers better. So it's very much a two tier sort of vision. But the base layer is such that uh, it enables um, a more competitive and a more uh, sort of inclusive system, um, where um, you can guard against uh, you know very high costs or uh, entrenchment of uh, of market power. That's that's a kind of in you know, a short version.
0: So this is one thing I, I kind of want to push on. But if if central banks are devoting all this time and energy to designing this new technology, why not? Go further? Why stop at a layer that augments the existing financial system? And why not sort of go all the way and actually try to create a digital replacement for cash? Because the system that you're describing at the moment doesn't necessarily have the same autonomy that cash would. So, you know, if I pay someone with cash, it can be an anonymous transaction. The central bank doesn't know about it. But most of the systems being discussed as CBDCs seem to veer much more towards a sort of traditional payments technology rather than designing something that's a a little bit newer that maybe would preserve the anonymity of cash?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, uh, goal to to aim for. Um, The idea is not to replace the role of the private sector payment service providers, but rather to have an option where um, you know, users can make payments digitally, just as if you were using cash, but, uh, but do so digitally. So the idea is that uh, you know, rather than going through an intermediary, you would actually um, you know, have a wallet on your phone and you would transfer a digital cash unit, as it were, uh, directly to someone else. Now, uh, how can we preserve uh, privacy in that kind of context? And I think this is one of the big design challenges, uh, you know, uh, um, undoubtedly because a digital version of money is a ledger entry. I mean, it's, uh, it's an entry in a database that says, uh, uh, so-and-so owns this unit, um, at, at what time. And then if you transfer that, there has to be a ledger entry that, uh, that indicates that, uh, you know, that transfer. Now, if that ledger was something that, um, is like Bitcoin. You would just have, um, you know, this public ledger. Everyone has access to all the transactions. It's just that you are masking your true identity, uh, you know, behind the address that you're using. Now, in, in the conventional payment system, uh, some notion of uh, know your customer rules, KYC rules, uh, so-called, I think, you know, will be necessary to keep the integrity. But, um, you know, there are ways of, uh, you know, minimizing the, uh, uh, the unwarranted access to data. So just to give you a quick example, in the so-called uh, APIs or application programming interfaces that we use in, uh, in conventional payment systems, in some open banking uh, jurisdictions, what you can do is you can open the app of one bank and you can check your balances in another bank using that, you know, one bank's app. And you can do that because um, you know when you log into your uh, the first bank's app, what you're doing is you're you're logging in using your password. Then your identity is um, established, and so when the, the instruction goes to the other bank that says, "Please display the uh, the account details of this person," what you're doing is you're sending a secure message to you know to this other bank, establishing who you are. And then retrieving only the information that is absolutely necessary for that kind of transaction. So, for example, so, you know, if, if they know the name and the account number, uh, I mean, that's all you need to establish, uh, you know, that link and bring the, uh, the necessary balance over. They don't need to know, for example, the payment history or your home address or phone number and so on. And uh, the technology behind these APIs, I mean, this is nothing other than public key cryptography. This is the technology that's uh, underlying, you know, the uh, digital signature technology in in many applications, including Bitcoin. Um, you, you have this public key that's out there. You know, you can sign a document and convince the receiver that it's you without necessarily revealing your private key. So, you know, there are these technologies available where you can Uh, you know, mask all the data other than uh, the pieces that are absolutely necessary. So it's, uh, so think of this, you know, rather like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, You know, everyone has a little bit of the jigsaw puzzle, but no one has the full picture, um, Hmm. you know, other than the individual concerned. And and no one needs to know the big picture. And that, of course, includes the central bank as well. Central bank uh, doesn't need to know everything. Uh, It only needs to know uh, the absolute minimum that uh, will enable the central bank to actually execute the um,
1: uh, you know the change in the ledger. Well, let me ask you another sort of like reframe the question a little bit because even before the digital currencies discussion started heating up, we've ta- there was uh, criticism of cash was growing, and of course there was Ken Rogoff's book. He was largely focused on large denomination bills, but still like this idea that cash is kind of a scourge for various reasons and crime and money laundering and so forth. Setting aside the technical capabilities, do you perceive that transaction privacy, at least on some level, is a value that central bankers or uh, regulators around uh, the world want to preserve? Is it something that they care about preserving as the world gets more digital? Or more or less, do they see this as an opportunity to sort of fix what was a sort of flaw in the monetary system?
2: I think central banks put a great deal of value to uh, privacy and maintaining mm. privacy. And I think cash is a very valuable medium in that respect. I mean, it's um, not only is it a direct claim and a very tangible, you mm-hmm. know, um, link to the central bank, but it uh, you know, guarantees a certain minimum level of privacy, which I think is, uh, you know, has attributes of a basic right. Um, I think what Ken was talking about was much more to do with the implementation of monetary policy and how to implement deeply you know, negative interest rates and so on. So I think that's a slightly different discussion. And certainly among central banks, uh, the need to preserve privacy, I, I think, is a very important strand in the discussion. And you may have seen the, uh, the various uh, notes that central banks have published. Uh, the ECB uh, has recently published a, a note about this. Now, even with a uh, system which is based fundamentally on uh, digital identity and, you know, and, and real name that enables, you know, know your customer type of, uh, you know, requirements for the payment service providers, you can uh, achieve some level of uh, anonymity. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can think of it as a kind of anonymity overlay. Uh, you can actually, you know, have an overlay on the system that, that guarantees this, the the system that the ECB has floated is this idea that uh, there is a separate privacy registrar, which is separate from the central bank. And then you would you know, register in your real name, but the registrar would grant you a kind of credit of how much you can spend anon- uh, you know, anonymously. And then so, uh, so when you use a CBDC, you can use some of this credit. Now, whether you like that particular scheme or not, um, uh, I think the fact that these schemes are being discussed, I think it's very much a sign that maintaining uh, you know, this minimum level of anonymity is a very, very important part of the monetary system.
0: I wanted to ask you how central banks are thinking about stable coins at the moment as oh, well.
1: We, we keep thinking along the exact same lines. I'm glad you went there.
0: <laughs> All right, we finally reached the uh, the ultimate melding of minds. But I mean, stable coins are an interesting development in in many ways, but sometimes people talk about them as sort of impinging on conventional money or conventional monetary policy in the sense that, you know, you're sort of creating um, something that's supposed to be relatively stable. Obviously, the, the clue is in the name, but it's still backed by... Fiat currencies, it's still backed by a central bank or a government, and that maybe that has the potential to to sort of splinter the monetary system. So I, I'm just curious: is this viewed as a challenge to the existing financial system, or is it sort of overblown currently?
2: I think Tracy, this is uh, this is a very good question, and uh, it uh, it is occupying minds at the moment and just to be clear uh when you talk about stable coins i think you're referring to uh the stable coins that are you know that have been proposed as a means of payment rather than all the uh all the defi uh stuff that's going on um uh, so I'll, I'll i'll assume that and
0: correct yeah
2: yeah so I, I think you know we we had the discussion about libra 2 years ago which uh which really concentrated minds um uh, and that plan has been, you know, somewhat modified. Um, now it's a single currency uh, proposal uh, that's being that's being prepared uh, under the new name of uh, of DM. I think the stable coin idea is a very interesting idea, in that it is uh, it is going back to the history of money in a way. The, the uh, I think last time we even possibly talked about the Bank of Amsterdam, where in the 17th century, uh, you know, merchants would bring their gold and silver coins, and then. The Bank of Amsterdam would uh, would then write up uh, a ledger entry. You'd have a deposit, and then you would transfer those deposits uh, to other merchants as a means of payment. And that's ex- essentially what a stable coin is. Uh, you know, you can buy into a a payment means. Uh, you know, by um, transferring fiat currency, if you like. You know, this would be you know used as uh, uh, as a means of payment. Um, you know, I think one issue, uh, that, uh, was present with, uh, with Libra, which is not present now, I think is the, is the multi-currency aspect, but more broadly, just leaving aside the, you know, the particular proposals, um, you know, one issue I think is to what extent will, will stable coins allow a system that's going to be interoperable, uh, with the conventional payment system. So for example... Can uh, I, as a customer of a bank, make, uh, you know, make a payment or receive payments from a, a stablecoin account holder? I think for that kind of uh, system to work, uh, you know, there would have to be some kind of settlement you know, uh, uh, underneath it. Typically, what would happen in the current system is the central bank would be you know, at, the, at the base. Uh, and so when a payment is made from one bank's customer to another bank's customer, the ultimate settlement you know happens on on the central banks uh, balance sheet um and the question is how would that kind of system work when you have a stablecoin working alongside a uh you know uh, alongside the conventional payment system i think if it's if it's interoperable i think uh, you know then we can reap uh, you know many of the benefits that are there in an open payment system if on the other hand if it's going to be more of a of a data silo more of a silos system where you have a walled garden, uh, then I think, uh, you know, there, there are issues to do with, uh, you know, to what extent will there be a fragmentation of the monetary system where the, I mean, the whole point of a monetary system is uh, the more people use that particular system, uh, the more useful it becomes. And so more people want to use the system. There's a kind of, you know, virtuous circle there. If you have a fragmented system, uh, it, the question would be how much that virtuous circle, how much that fit of that feedback loop is going to be, uh, you know, undermined by the fragmentation.
1: Are you satisfied with the level of regulation of stable coins right now? I mean, they're currently, they're about $100 billion in market cap or how many have been issued. Some of them, there continue to be questions about what's backing them and so forth. How much does the current... Sort of, I mean, it's an exploding area. How much does the current environment resemble what you think the ideal environment should look like?
2: Well, Joe, I think you've hit upon a very topical issue. Uh, As you know, this is something that is being discussed among regulators. Uh, The the traditional answer has been that this space is really too small to pose uh, financial stability risks. And I think that uh, that is probably has been the case. If they become much larger, and I think if in particular, you know, we have points of contact with the, with the conventional financial system, in particular with the conventional banking system, then that kind of assessment may need to be, you know, may need to be reassessed. But as long as the, uh, you know, the activity is very much, you know, within the, uh, you know, within this crypto sphere, probably the dangers of financial instability probably are going to be, uh, are going to be less. The issues, I think, uh, may have more to do with the usual kinds of conduct uh, issues, um, uh, consumer protection, uh, you know, uh, uh, and other conduct issues. So um, that's more the area of financial uh, regulators rather than central banks wearing their hats as, uh, as the guardians of the monetary system. But clearly, this is something that we need to be, um, you know, need to be monitoring very closely.
0: So I mentioned earlier that the BIS is one of a a number of economic institutions which has been writing about central bank um, digital currencies. And in fact, uh, you're out with a a new report this week as part of your um, annual review. It's called CBDCs, An Opportunity for the Monetary System. There's a bit in there that caught my eye and, you know, Advance apologies to any Bitcoin maximalists who might be listening, but um, the the exact quote was, by now it's clear that cryptocurrencies are speculative assets rather than money, and in many cases are used to facilitate money laundering, ransomware attacks, and other financial crimes. Bitcoin in particular has few redeeming public interest attributes when also considering its wasteful energy footprint. So that's pretty damning from the BIS in, in my mind. Do you want to perhaps walk us through your thinking around, you know, the original cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and why it's not necessarily applicable to your thinking uh, when it comes to wider central bank digital currencies?
2: Well, Tracy, I think you've, uh, uh, you've caught the one paragraph on, on Bitcoin in the whole report. <laughs> uh, so well done on that. I, I think so. We were, we were not going to spend. So we're not spending that much time on, on Bitcoin and, uh, and cryptocurrencies in this report because the focus of the report is very much on how can central bank digital currencies you know build on on the current payment system to to uh, to make it uh, you know to make it better but the idea behind that particular paragraph was just to point out that uh, that you know bitcoin isn't uh, that much useful transactions it's it you know there was a time when there was a discussion about whether this were that uh, whether bitcoin would be used for transactions um on a daily basis. I think that, that uh, debate, I think is probably, you know, closed. Uh, it's much more about, uh, you know, whether Bitcoin can serve as, uh, um, as a crypto asset, as it were, and, and all the focus is on how much, uh, you know, uh, you know, they can be bought and sold using, using, uh, uh conventional money. Uh, so that was the point that we were making, you know, of course we devoted a lot more, uh, space to this a couple of years ago when we wrote about cryptocurrencies and. Uh, and back then, we pointed out that, uh, you know, there were problems of scalability, uh, problems of finality uh, that would probably, you know, render these, uh, you know, these uh, you know, very clever instruments um, less than suitable as payment uh, media.
1: Now, I'd love to just pivot a little bit with a few more minutes to some of the broader macro questions. Actually, I think a good way to sort of like seg a little bit uh, between the discussion of currency itself to the broader macro is to talk a little bit about the dollar because the dollar itself, the good old greenback, is always sort of seen as being stressed, or people are predicting its demise, or that maybe somehow a crisis might test it somehow. We've obviously seen like price weakness um, just as amid this sort of like big risk on uh, move that we've seen in asset markets over the last uh, uh, several months. But from like a standing perspective, the dollar's role in the world looking compared to a year ago, has anything changed? Is there any like stress on the role of the dollar itself or um, changing its position from your perspective?
2: I don't think there's been much change there, Joe. Uh, I, th- I think we were on—we uh, were discussing well, pretty much almost exactly a year ago. Um, uh, we were discussing financial markets, uh, fiscal space, as I recall, yeah. and the dollar. Um, I think the um, the long-term, you know, structural features are still very much, um, uh, you know, very much intact. You know, there are of course the short-term fluctuations, and uh, uh, you know, we have seen a, a shift in the dollar, uh, you know, in. In the last few days, I remember when we had the last conversation that um, uh, we ended off by saying that everything would depend on the on the trajectory of the pandemic. And I think I think that's that's been proved right. Um, um, you know, since we last talked, there there has been, of course, the uh, the rollout of the vaccines, uh, which has been a real game changer. Uh, it's not uh, sufficiently distributed uh, worldwide yet, uh, so um, uh, so we're not out of the woods. I think economies have opened up uh, a lot faster than uh, you know when we were last discussing uh, this, and uh, and this has meant that uh, you know as well as the dollar, the talk about inflation has really taken off, um, and uh, you know we've seen some um, some interesting um, you know movements in the treasury market with the flattening of the yield curve and so on. So there, there's plenty for us to uh, to think about. I, you know, I suppose what we need to do though is. Is uh, not to you know read too much into the um, you know day to day movements in in market prices and not to interpret these uh, day to day changes in terms of some sort of some kind of deeper economic rationale. I mean, uh, sometimes it's just uh, you know we sometimes use the shorthand the market's expectations to to denote uh, the expectation of 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 some kind of mythical individual, but it is just a shorthand about uh, you know about prices and. it's important to bear in mind that the market is not actually a person. It's, uh, uh, price is just the outcome of individual actions. Um, so, you know, when you have unwinding of various positions, you know, steepener positions or, um, on, um, uh, on the reflation trade using, uh, you know, break-evens, you would see this kind of action, um, you know, in the, in the yield curve. So I think we shouldn't, you know, read too much into the day-to-day changes. I think what we have seen is that uh, as the economy has opened up, um, inflation has become more of a topic. Uh, you know, we're, we're of the view that a lot of the, um, uh, the recent tick-up in, in inflation have to do with the, uh, the base effects. And um, uh, I think there is a lot to be said for the, for the argument that uh, this is mostly you know, transitory. When we talk, you know, possibly, if we have another chance to talk a year from now, we'll have a time to, uh, you know, reflect.
0: Since you mentioned... Um the steepener trade just then. Since the Fed meeting uh, earlier this month that came in uh, more hawkish than a lot of people had expected, we did see a pretty significant bond market reaction with the curve flattening significantly. And a lot of these steepener trades that had become basically the reflationary trade uh, getting stopped out and a lot of whiplash in the market. I know the BIS has been concerned with liquidity in the treasury market overall ever since the uh, the big drama that we saw in March of 2020. I'm wondering how you're thinking about that issue now, whether or not you feel the market is more robust given Fed interventions over the past year, uh, and what the market reaction might actually be um, as we sort of prepare to normalize monetary policy. I guess that's a really long way of asking, are you concerned about a taper tantrum fueled by Market structure issues.
2: You know, there, ha- there has always been the, um, you know, uh, there has always been. I think uh, the short-term movements in the market, uh, especially, you know, even in very liquid markets like the, you know, like the treasury market. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't really go into the details of the specific, uh, you know, monetary actions of specific central banks on this. Uh, I think it's enough to say probably that. You know, when we think about the, the market functioning issue, uh, there are, you know, uh, there are these episodes when the positioning of market players can lead to, you know, very sharp movements. Uh, but even, you know, during normal day-to-day movements, um, uh, you know, there can be some big changes if the positioning can also, you know, lead to, uh, uh, you know, a, a revision of those
1: kind of beliefs. But let me leave it there, Tracy.
0: Okay, fair enough. I think this
1: has been really good. One sort of thing that interested me, and this is not about any sort of specific central bank per se, but one of the things that we saw last year that I'm super interested in during the crisis is that various EMs, they engaged in forms of QE uh, that people didn't necessarily think they had the tools available to them. We saw a lot of fiscal expansion, not just in the US, but even, say, in Brazil, we saw fiscal expansion, much of it perceived to be effective. Has the has the crisis changed anyone's view about what is capable of that maybe from a policy space perspective that EMs had had more latitude to fight downturns on their own than we thought? I mean, we think of like EMs as like, oh, they have to tighten in a downturn, unlike uh, developed markets where they can loosen in a downturn. Has the last year brought any sort of change in thinking about what kind of policy space uh, might exist on the EM front?
2: That's a very good question, Joe. Uh, and I, I remember discussing this with you last time I was on. I mean, one issue was the extent of fiscal space that uh, uh, even emerging market economies uh, yeah. you know, found during the pandemic, and it was a kind of you know very unique uh, um, crisis in that it was a you know uh, it was an economic sudden stop as you know as as well as being a um, uh, health crisis and the. And the fiscal response was really key. Uh, and I think what enabled uh, emerging markets to deploy fiscal policy you know, very effectively uh, was that they discovered that they could actually you know, deploy fiscal resources, uh, even to the extent of intervening you know, in the bond market, uh, mainly for, fun, uh, for market functioning purposes rather than for QE as traditionally uh, you know, depicted. But I think that was primarily because um, the, the Fed and other uh, advanced economy central banks were able to really um, deploy their liquidity uh, you know, very expansively. Yeah, so they really opened the, uh, opened the taps. What that meant was that financial conditions were uh, you know, kept very accommodative. The dollar, which you know, uh, strengthened briefly at the height of the uh, pandemic, the initial phase of the pandemic, Uh, you know, then went into this, uh, you know, downward uh, trajectory. And I think that gave a lot of space to the emerging markets. I think that's been a very important lesson. Now, it's been um, now uh, over a year since then. Uh, The question is how much more space do emerging markets have? Uh, I think fiscal space has narrowed because the debts uh, of emerging markets have uh, have grown relative to where they were, uh, you know, last year. And uh, not all of these emerging markets have uh, international currencies. Um, And so, you know, there is an issue about uh, the extent of fiscal space. And I think it's an area where we we need to keep a very close eye on how well emerging markets can cope if there were to be another tightening of global conditions.
0: So... I just realized there's a question that that we should ask, which probably threads the needle between um, the beginning of this discussion on CBDCs and uh, the end of the discussion. That's more on macro and the role of the dollar and emerging markets. But there is a perception out there that central bank digital currencies could amount to an effort to get away from the U.S. dollar as the dominant currency of the financial system. Um, I won't mention any specific country names, but I, I think there are fears over a specific one. How credible are those concerns? And secondly, if we're talking about building a new payment system that involves central bank digital currencies, it feels like you need some sort of consensus among different countries, different international players. How do you go about building that Consensus, given these different interests in the way the financial system functions,
2: that's a very important issue. I think it's worth starting out by saying that the payment system, you know, doesn't float separately from the underlying economic transactions, and uh, you know, currencies don't become international currencies, just uh, because it's digital, you know, just because it's, digital, uh, you know, just because it's uh, in digital form, uh, but rather, you know, they become international currencies because there is a user demand for it. Uh, you know, for instance, for for the settlement of trade transactions. Um, and I think that's probably, uh, you know, important to bear in mind, um, you know, with regard to the, uh, uh, you know, discussions about, you know, whether China is using the, you know, the rollout of its ECNY for for those uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, circumvention, uh, uh, you know, purposes. The idea of, um, you know, cash circulating in briefcases uh, in the black market is probably not a good analogy for CBDCs because the kind of CBDCs we are envisaging typically in, in most central banks, um, are based on digital ID, you know, they are account based. Um, so if someone were to use a CBDC that's issued in, in one country, but it's, uh, but it's being used outside, the issuing central bank has to know about it and has to you know give you know has to consent to to that use taking place and of course the host jurisdiction central bank will also have a lot of say in what kind of transactions take place you know within the domestic financial system so i think we can overestimate the extent to which you know there will be this kind of currency substitution where uh, a foreign cbdc will be encroaching on the on the domestic financial system Needless to say, um, if you want to use CBDCs for the transactions that will, um, you know, uh, that that will facilitate the legitimate economic transactions, then of course that's something that is very amenable to monetary cooperation. And indeed, one of the things that uh, you know will surely come out um, as CBDCs become much more, you know, commonly discussed are um, uh, discussions on um, connecting CBDC systems across countries so that we can, you know, simplify the monetary architecture where, uh, you know, typically we will need to go through correspondent banks in this very complicated chain, uh, you know, adding cost and adding, you know, delays to payments. Uh, if you have a simple system like a CBDC-based system, you could potentially you know, simplify that monetary architecture, um, you could make cross-border payments much uh, uh, cheaper and simpler. Uh, you know, that would be a very good, uh, you know, development for, um, for both, you know, migrants sending money back home for tourists um, and for travelers. So I would see this much more in this positive light of, uh, yes, there are pretty significant controls you can apply to make sure it doesn't, you know, serve purposes other than the intended purposes. But then, the, uh, you know, then the intended purposes could be, you know, pretty broad, and uh, you know, those are, you know, very desirable outcomes in any case.
0: Hyun, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on all lots and um, explaining all these uh, new I- ideas in central banking to us. So, thank you.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks. That was fantastic.
0: So, Joe, it really does feel like there's a a lot going on if you're a monetary policymaker at the moment. But one of the things that um, sort of stood out from that conversation was, A, how quickly the CBDC discussion is sort of moving on, but B, just how dead that narrative around Bitcoin as a transaction mechanism actually is, like that central banks barely even mention it now. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I think the perception among regulators is is still like, oh, this is like this like highly speculative vehicle and so forth. But in terms of like actually like a thing that gets sort of used in the conventional sense of used, I mean, I guess uh, holding is a form of usage, but beyond is just like not really a thing that's on their mind.
0: No, not at all. Um, But I did find that conversation interesting. I also found um, Hyun's distinction between the idea of CBDCs, as by the way, every time I say CBDC, I think of CBD oil. Now there's like a thousand CBD shops that have cropped up in Hong Kong. They're on every corner.
1: Oh, oh I didn't realize it was big there.
0: Yeah, it's huge. Like it, it seems to have suddenly all come over in the past year. But anyway, sorry. Um, so if I mess up, if I mess up the two terms, that's why. But one of the weird things about CBDCs is. It sort of goes to Hyun's point about this being a, a augmentation of the existing monetary system yeah. rather than a wholesale redesign. And I think when a lot of people think about cryptocurrencies, they generally think about a revolution of the financial system, a major um, sort of technological upgrade, whereas the way central banks are, seem to be thinking about a lot of this is as a sort of, um, I guess, platform upgrade a, a, around the edges.
1: Yeah, I I, I feel like this, like... CBDC, I mean, because Bitcoin came along, and so we have this idea of this sort of like cryptographic thing, this sort of bearer Mm -hmm. asset, that that is the mental model that people still think of when they think of a CBDC. But for the most part, it sounds like a lot of the effort is still more generally towards doing a better job of just the core digital infrastructure of money, which is not very good. Um, It's even the the traditional systems are kind of slow. There are all kinds of problems with it. There's a uh, pr- uh, perhaps not sufficiently inclusive transfers are expensive. So I think a lot of this conversation is still about just like, how can the payment system be better than it currently totally. is now? And it's something that sort of like more resembles just like an upgrade of the system rather than sort of like a new kind of central bank money.
0: Yeah, I think that's the right distinction to be making. Um All right. Well, we'll have you on um, in another year and see. He's
1: always great. He's always great to talk to. I just like find like talking to him to be like the sort of like fount of insight. And because he's at the BIS and so well connected, just like a great way to like sort of like sense where the world is
0: going. Totally. And I have a feeling um, it's going to get very interesting uh, from a sort of macro bond market perspective. So um, good times ahead for uh, for markets content for financial journalists. All right. Shall we leave it there?
1: Yep, let's leave it there.
0: This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Hyun Song Shin, the Economic Advisor and Head of Research at the Bank for International Settlements. His handle is at HyunSongShin. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.